What time is it, everybody? It's trek-in time. <laughs> I like that intro. <laughs> trek-in time is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. We're going to be taking a look at all of the episodes of Star Trek in chronological order. And we are, surprise, surprise, at the very end of season one of Enterprise. We're also basically with one foot at the beginning of season two because we're dealing with a two-parter today. We're taking a look at those episodes in chronological order, which is why we're way back in Enterprise ahead of any of the other series. And we're also going to take a look at what the real world was like when these episodes originally aired. So we're taking a look at things like movies, TV shows, and the news from 2002. I don't remember anything really going on back then. There's nothing going on. There was there were no world events no. back then. No. I don't even know if we had television. You're wondering whose eyes are doing this looking and who is doing the talking. It's me, Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some books for kids. And with me is my brother, Matthew. Matt, say hi. Hello. Matt is the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Before we get into this episode, don't forget, there are ways you can support the podcast. You can go to trekintime.show. There's a link there that will allow you to throw coins at us. There's also simply doing what you're doing right now, listening or watching on YouTube, subscribing, liking, sharing, being good people generally, taking love into the world. <laughs> All of that helps the podcast. Yeah. Matt, how you doing? I'm good. Things are good. How are you? I'm doing well. You got some listener comments for us before we get into the newest episode? Yeah, from the last episode, which was two days and two nights, um, we had a couple of comments I thought that were pretty good from palego 69 I was hoping Hoshi's boy toy would have become a member of the crew. <laughs> I think he would have been a great addition to the show and compliment Hoshi's weak points. <laughs> it would have, it, would, it definitely would have opened up Hoshi as a character and developed her in interesting ways if, I mean, they've done that on Star Trek before. In Next yep. Generation, when... Miles O'Brien gets married. Yeah. Suddenly he becomes a more three-dimensional person. He's got a personal life. He's got things going on. Giving Hoshi a boyfriend who's just hanging out in the cabin. Yeah. And at the end of a day where she's just like this universal translator, does all the work, and then she goes back into her cabin. He's there. He's just like, so, hard day. That would be great. I'm kind of into that. <laughs> the, the second comment was from Robotrav. Okay, post-show comment on my first run-through. I thought this one was supposed to be like a break from the real narrative of the show. I looked at it as a simple moment of comic relief, which allowed me to see past the ridiculous plot problems. And Phlox is hilarious. And <laughs> this, I think, is a good summary of how I felt about the show in a way, but I couldn't get past those ridiculous plot problems. Yeah, It's like, it did feel like it was meant to be kind of a, a break from the serious before they got back into what the episode we're talking about today, which is the season finale, and it gets back into the heart of the main thread of the show. Yeah. So it felt like it was a, meant to be a break from that, but it, for me, obviously didn't work. But yeah. I, I liked his comics. I think it kind of was what they were trying to do. I agree. And I think that for me, one of the things that helped this episode fail was that it's supposed to give comic relief, but it's giving comic relief after a series of episodes, which finally felt like the show was hitting its stride. 
Mm -hmm. And before those episodes were a lot of muddy, kind of boggy, mediocre mediocre episodes. So we went from a mediocre middle into finally feeling like, oh, we're hitting our stride here. This is is Trek. To then having the lighthearted episode let all of the air out of the balloon. And it just felt like it deflated the energy as opposed to giving us a breath. And for me, it was like I could understand what, what you're saying, what RoboTrav is saying. Here's a moment of, of levity before we get back into more serious stuff. But it was more of a record scratch. Yeah, it was a little <laughs> bit too much like, as opposed to comic relief, a little bit too much of a return to what episodes 13 and 14 felt like, as opposed mm-hmm. to, oh, I, I can't catch my breath. The episodes have been too intense for too long. And speaking of too intense for too long, today we're going to be talking about Shockwave. This is a two-part episode. Part one was the season finale for season one, and part two was the season opener for season two. Matt, do you want to give us a quick synopsis? I'm going to let the magic of Wikipedia synopsis do all the work for you. This synopsis, pay attention everybody, this synopsis really encapsulates what this episode is about. I was just going to say, I haven't read this. This is the first time I've seen it. And I'm like, is this written for somebody who's never heard of Star Trek? <laughs> I think it's written for somebody who's never watched television before. Please okay. take so it away. Strap yourself in. These, this, this is one sentence, by the way. This is not even two sentences. Yeah. Set in the 22nd century of the Star Trek science fiction universe, Captain Archer of the NX-01 Enterprise deals with a shuttlecraft incident on an alien planet. <laughs> Could we get a little more vague I thought, and generic? <laughs> I thought that was a magical synopsis. Yes. And normally what we do in our episodes is we usually end on the note of, hey, listeners, do you have a question or do you have something to share or I give you a question that I'm thinking about? What I'd like to do for this is invite listeners. Can you write a one-sentence synopsis of for this episode. this episode, but wrong answers only? <laughs> wrong answers only. <laughs> I want to see, because <laughs> technically this Wikipedia entry is technically yeah. correct. But yes. I'd like to see what our viewers would do with giving a synopsis, but wrong answers only for the episodes Shockwave Part 1 and 2. So this episode was written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, and it was directed by Rick Croker. This is the third time that Rick Croker is directing an episode. It was part one aired on May 22nd, 2002, and it was viewed by 5.6 million viewers. Part two aired on September 18th, 2002, and sadly had only 4.8 million viewers. So there were some hundreds of thousands of people who were like, oh yeah, that, that uh, cliffhanger episode, I really (laughs) don't care how it ended. Yeah. So moving through our response to the episodes, I'd like to break the conversation into two large parts so that first we'll visit what was the world like when episode one aired? Well, Matt, I know you are not surprised by this at all, but you were still dancing your feet off to Don't Let Me Get Me by Pink. She held that number one spot for quite a while. And the number one movie 
uh, it's a long forgotten project called Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones made $80 million. And of course that franchise would go nowhere. No, no. It died. Died. Died a sad death. I wonder what happened to any of those characters. Yeah. If only there was a way to revisit that. (laughs) On television, people were tuning into Everybody Loves Raymond, which when this popped up as the number one show for this episode, I was like, oh yeah, Everybody Loves Raymond was a thing. Mm -hmm. And 20 million people knew it was a thing, which means that 15 million more people were watching that thing than this thing. And in the New York Times, well, when episode one of this two-parter aired, Tom Daschle was seeking a special inquiry into the September 11th attacks. Headed for a confrontation with the White House and congressional Republicans, the majority leader of the Democratic-controlled Senate today called for an independent commission to investigate government action before the September 11th attacks. He said such a panel was needed for, quote, a greater degree of public scrutiny, of public involvement, of public understanding, close quote. The majority leader, Senator Tom Daschle of South Dakota, said he would bring legislation before the Senate soon to create the commission. His announcement followed days of warnings from senior Bush administration officials, including the vice president, that further terrorist attacks against the United States were virtually certain. So it was the beginning of it feels like the beginning of the first major turn away from the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks and the beginning of not the politicization of the attacks, but the beginning more critical of look. the more critical look at what was going on, a kind of re-examination of, okay, how did this happen? What did we know and when did we know it? And strangely, I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand I don't know how much of this first episode, part one, was written post 9-11, but the the storyline revolving as heavily as it does around the Suleban, the involvement of the Suleban in previous episodes, the laying out of storylines about the Suleban right from the beginning, the tone of what that meant changed. To, it mm-hmm. feels like to me, post 9-11, where it went from being they're a creepy bad guy to they're effectively a terror organization. Yep. And here we are in this episode, the resurgence of the terror element and the resurgence of a major plot point that was set in motion the very beginning of the series, the entire idea of what a temporal Cold War is and looks like. And... So here we are in some time in March of 2152. It kind of, given Star Trek's penchant for starting most episodes with a star date and in Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, as you move through all those shows, they were constantly saying star date, dot, dot, dot. This series, they either give us hard dates, which are literally... Mm -hmm from our calendar, or they don't give us anything. I'm not sure why they decided to do a little bit of both, but we've gone from a few episodes where they were giving us hard dates in February of 2152, and the next hard date that we get is a few episodes away, which will be in April of 2152. So I'm thinking we're looking somewhere around the Ides of March right now. And the episode starts 
rather quietly with the enterprise preparing to send down a group of visitors to visit a colony, a mining colony called Paragon 2. And there was something about the, the lead-in to this whole visit, the, the dialogue as it was written was very strange. It, it was it was harkening yes. back to some of the gender issues that we've complained about throughout the season, which is I, they talk <laughs> about women as yeah. if as if most of the crew has never seen a woman. It, it, my favorite favorite part about this though is it's always trip. They're it's always, always trip. making trip, trip is <laughs> making the weird woman comments. Yeah. And I made a note to myself of I still find it really strange that Trip is the one who makes these weird gender comments or raised eyebrows when it has to do with women. It's yeah. it's a really weird casting that they're doing here for his character, considering this is supposed to be at a certain point in our future where you we're supposed to have gotten past that, and yet it's acting like it's still alive, you know, alive and well. And not culture. only is it alive and well, but but it is redefining what it means to quote get past it. Oh, getting past gender as something that's going to hold somebody back means that almost a third of your crew is women, as opposed to some sort of I mean, just natural it equity. Could, it could be a deliberate. It could be a deliberate choice because, like, then when you go to like next generation and that kind of era, it's like it really is gone at that point. The the gender divide. But it's like maybe they were trying to say we're a little better than we are now, but we're still not quite there. Right. But that never comes across clearly as a point they're trying to make. It looks like it's just an accidental bias that's just kind yeah. of seeping its way into the show, not a deliberate choice. It doesn't seem like a deliberate choice. It seems like an accident of the era that it was yes. made in. And yep. I know what you're saying. It's like if you were to make a show that was set in the 1920s and you would show people of color being treated in clearly harmful and extremely negative ways that would not mesh with what we hope to see in the future. But you would say, well, that's historically based and we're mm -hmm. depicting things as they were. This is though is a show set in the future. So it makes it stand out more as a deliberate choice as opposed to saying we're reflecting a history. We're examining it through a lens of fiction, but we are looking at history. This feels like this is not the goal. This is not the focal point. So it just stands out as being anachronistic in a weird way. Yeah. So th the thing that stands out the most at this point is they're talking about visiting this colony that is apparently based on a matriarchal approach to governing. And all of the members of the enterprise are raising eyebrows about the idea of women being in charge and like, all right, like, let's get past that. Sadly, mm -hmm. the way we get past that is that the shuttle on its way down to the planet ignites the atmosphere of the planet and immediately incinerates 3,600 colonists on the surface of the planet. This accident is effectively the cold open and it's a very dramatic rendering of what it looks like. It is clear and there have been episodes before that have dealt with with questions about like explosions on the surface of a planet, accidental ignition, accidental, you know, something going up. The way the special effects were done in this moment, I thought were particularly jarring because yeah. what you see is they very carefully are demonstrating that the atmosphere is igniting, but everything on the surface is clearly burning as a result. And you see the fire wash across the surface of the planet in what I thought was a very effective piece of CGI. Yeah. 
probably the best disturbing. CGI. Yeah, the probably the best CGI in this episode that we've seen all season. It makes sense that they would. They probably, I imagine, had in budgeting the show. The reason mm-hmm. the Risa episode was so lackluster, they probably held on to a certain portion of the budget and just pushed For it this toward one. this. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So after this calamity on the planet, 3,600 people dead. I thought that the next scene was, was as much as I didn't like the first opening two-minute dialogue where it was this whole thing about what are the people on this colony like? I didn't think we needed any of that lead up. I didn't think we needed any of that conversation. It would have been fine to say like, I can't wait to go down to this colony. That would have been enough. Mm-hmm. And But then post-accident, I thought that the dialogue, especially from Archer, is heartbreaking. And ext- the scene, I think, was extremely well portrayed. Yeah, no, the, the, I think the writing, just in general for this episode, was overall really good. Yeah. And the, the, this post-opening credits, it was like a gut punch. And they really got, every, your, as a viewer, got me in the place of like, a, oh, God, this is awful. And showing Archer's um, dismay as what happened of him just sitting in his, <laughs> sitting in his room, just scrolling through all the people that died. Yeah. And it's like, that would that alone, that one shot just spoke volumes. I thought it was really well done in establishing the dismay that the entire crew had over what had happened. And let's and let's you know link that up you know as as the point of this podcast you know taken in the context of history, September eleventh. He's looking at thirty six hundred people. The numbers of the victims of September eleventh were constantly being revised, and they were being re- revised up into even just recently. Because there were there were at a certain point after September 11th, every single time a person contacted authorities looking for an individual, that individual was listed as missing and assumed dead. The problem was there was a lot of duplication. Mm-hmm. So if somebody contacted the FBI and then separately contacted the NYPD, both of those would list them as a missing person, and both those lists would then be combined and that person would be double sometimes even triple counted if more than one person reached out there was a lot of duplication on that list so there were numbers immediately after 9-11 with numbers as high as 10,000 people died the numbers kept getting adjusted down but at this point when this episode is airing the idea of 3,600 people dying in a one fell swoop like this this is almost a direct reference it feels mm-hmm. to a 9-11 event yeah, and, it, and it being caused by a flying aircraft that is coming down and then has this impact it felt very not on the nose but just like a link is being made an emotional link is being made and so him sitting archer sitting in his in his quarters and scrolling through faces and for anybody who was around after 9/11 the new york times listed a, an obituary on the front pages of their of their paper for weeks they listed obituaries for every victim and it was literally just like scrolling through faces like you just saw it constantly it was it was in it was on television news programs were ending their evening news by showing lists of people 
it looked very much like this. So this is this is pulling all of the imagery that we were accustomed to after 9-11 and putting it into the context of this individual who feels personally responsible for all of this. The thing that kept hitting me was when he keeps barking at Hoshi, you've got to get in contact with somebody on the planet. And her response as she's heartbroken herself and saying, there's nothing there. We were actually looking at it when it happened. We were looking at the colony when it happened. There's no structures left. It is gone. So the power of these moments and the personal responsibility that Archer feels, I think comes screaming through the TV screen at this point. Going so far as Archer reaching out to Admiral Forrest back at Starfleet, having to communicate this to him, the hard dialogue that then follows with Forrest saying, we're going to have to figure out how we reach out to the home world for these people. And in another very powerful moment, Archer saying, I should do that. Like, mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to be one to do that. We don't see that moment though because it's the focus of the storytelling is not about the overcoming of the tragedy in a personal way with the people who've now lost their colony family. But it goes the other direction into kind of the political aftermath, kind of what we saw in the news that I just shared about Tom Daschle's arguing for a full investigation of the 9-11 event. The episode then goes into the Vulcans are taking this as an opportunity to argue that humans are not ready to be out there. Yeah, it was, it was interesting that they were making the Vulcans have the knee-jerk reaction of the seals it done, which was the attitude immediately after 9-11. But then there's the, the Dashiell investigation that you brought up where it's trying to be more critical and look into like, no, wait, what actually happened here, which is what the Enterprise ends up trying to do. Right. So there's this debate that begins and the Vulcans taking advantage of a moment to say, and there's a, a lovely scene toward the end of this over, overall story in which the Vulcans lay out a case of like, you've gotten into firefights with people left, right, and center. You've, you've impacted the region in incalculable ways. You've destabilized peace between the Andorians and the Vulcans. It, like laying all these things out, it seems very damning. And then the final thing being, and then you just incinerated 3,600 people by mistake. Mm-hmm. Like you're not ready to be there, but it all, the investigation of what happened, the nuts and bolts of what happened is taking place on the enterprise where Reed is adamant. He did the flight procedures according to the instructions from the colony. He was prepared. They, they, the, the cause of the explosion was not a secret. It was tetrazine in the atmosphere as a, as a result of the mining and they had given very careful approach procedures to the Enterprise crew. And Reed is adamant. I followed all of those to the letter. I even was more cautious than they suggested. There's no way our plasma exhaust ignited the tetrazine in the atmosphere. And as they begin to look at the details, they begin to see things that don't add up. Like the tetrazine levels were lower than they expected. And everything aboard the, the shuttlecraft says that the plasma exhaust were closed and Archer keeps thinking there must be a mistake in the shuttlecraft or in our records, but everybody 
on the crew is saying like, we're looking at the details right now and these things don't add up. It doesn't add up to an explosion. And that's when Archer then suddenly finds himself waking up after going, not even going to sleep. He gets into bed, he turns out the light in a moment of it seeming very much like he needs comfort. He calls for Porthos to join him on the bed. When Porthos doesn't respond, he turns the light back on and discovers he's no longer aboard the Enterprise. He is in his bed 10 months earlier, the night before the Enterprise's mission actually began. And he knows when he is because he receives a call and the call is Trip letting him know about some issues that might delay their meeting that they had planned and Archer knows the details of the conversation before Trip even says anything. And he's basically walking around in his pajama bottoms, wondering, how can I be back here now? And I know what I thought was a brilliant moment calls up and through some sort of medical exchange, interviews a woman on the call to say, like, do you have a doctor who's a denobulin in your exchange program? And when she says, yes, we do, his name is Dr. Phlox. He hangs up the call and says, I didn't know Phlox until he literally showed up as a result of the, of the Klingon that was captured. So I love the moment for the fact that Archer is able to, on the fly, come up Figured with a out. test for himself to see, am I actually in the past? And, yep. he's, and he figures it out pretty quickly. So this is when Crewman Daniels reappears. And this is an element of the show that I think is like, all right, they just want us to ride past this. Crewman Daniels the hand has been dead. of like, aren't you dead? Aren't you dead? <laughs> like, and what? him saying, well, you know, not really. And it's this very casual, like, oh, we're not going to worry about that right now. It is literally just a, I'm not the dead person. You, yeah, like, don't worry about it. We're getting past that. Interesting choice. Um, it, well, it, it's one of those, it ultimately doesn't matter because you could explain it away with, it's time travel. The time travel folks may have rescued him at the last second, so it looked like he was killed, but he wasn't because they actually rescued him because they knew he died there, so they tried to prevent his death. It's like There's this rabbit hole that we could go down yeah. that could explain it away. And so I kind of did actually like the fact they were like, d d no. Just don't even bother. Don't worry about it. It's it's not important because it's not. Ultimately, it's not because you could come up with some convoluted way that you could say he's still alive. But we're not even going to go there. We're not going to waste time. Just let's move on. Go with it. I kind of like that. See, for me, the problem with that is, oh, there's a lot of problems with time gets, travel. As soon as you do, <laughs> as soon as you do time travel and anything, I don't care what you're doing, you open up a Pandora's box of pain from yeah. a storytelling point of view I've, because. It's like, it's a, it's a magic excuse to, to do whatever you want. We've talked about this. We've talked about this in the podcast before. I know this well. I wrote a novel about time travel. It is, it will break your brain. It will break mm -hmm. your heart. Um, but for me, things like, okay, Daniels, people thought he died, but he actually didn't. I don't know what value there is for Daniels to let the Enterprise think that he's dead. So if it was a last second rescue, 
Let, but let I don't me think just, it's because. Let me just finish. Okay. Let me just finish my point though. So if you have Daniel's die, but he's not actually dead, I don't understand what value there would be in him letting the Enterprise think that he's dead. Wouldn't he show well, back up and say, "Don't worry about it. I'm not actually dead." But, but the bigger good, issue, I'm not. No, no, I got a response to that. But I have. <laughs> but let me get to my my bigger point, which is uh-huh. there's a great opportunity in him appearing here now. And Archer saying, "We saw you die." It would have been better for Daniels to say, "Don't tell me any more about what you know because that hasn't happened for me." You could have done that. That would way. have been more interesting to say that this is Daniels from a point in Daniels's experience, which is earlier, that he doesn't know how he will die. And it, you could have had an interesting moment for that character to look heartbroken, to look worried, and to say, uh, "It's probably best if you don't say anything else because that may not happen for me for a long time." So that, right. to me, that's the missed opportunity here to have it's, a neat an little easy w- sci-fi moment yes. as opposed to just a writerly moment of, oh, don't worry about that. He's not dead. No, but that's where I come back to. Like, you, once again, you could explain it all the way, Sean, of like, you let them believe that you're dead because you don't want the Suleban or anybody else to know that he's actually alive. And if the cap, you, you, you only let people know what they need to know. And so they probably determined, oh, the Enterprise doesn't need to know that Daniels is alive because it would put them actually at more jeopardy if they did know that Daniels was alive. So we're just going to let them think that everything's dead everything's clean, mm-hmm. let the timeline keep going along its merry way. It's like, that's why I'm saying like, Daniels wouldn't have to go back and go, I'm okay. It's like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need that moment. So it's True. like, once again, it, do, it doesn't bother me at all that True. they did the, the little hand wavy moment. Right. I, I'm, I, as a viewer, I'm more willing to kind of go along with it. Like, okay, there's some nitpicks here, but let's just go with it. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, the story takes what I think is a neat, timey-wimey path Mm -hmm. for the plot it doesn't put archer in control of the plot he's the mechanism yes for other time travelers but it creates for like it literally feels like somebody is behind the scenes cranking the story forward very quickly like we Mm want to get from where we are which is a heartbroken archer who can barely function because of guilt a crew that's confused and scratching their heads they want to get past all of the investigate all the investigatory stuff and mm-hmm. get into the heart of the episode, which is going to be the conflict with the Suleban. And how they get there is we don't see the conversation, but we see Daniel say to Archer, we got some stuff to do, so here's how we're going to do it. And the next time we see Archer talking to his crew, he's a changed man and he has knowledge that he should not have. Yeah. And just starts giving orders to people to do things that sound absolutely fantastic to the rest of the crew. He gives instructions to Trip to build a device that Trip is barely able to understand how it would even potentially work. And Archer is very open about where these ideas came from. I've been visited by a time traveler. I was taken into my own past where I was exposed to all these things. One of the elements of the time travel that I really did like was that this set up the idea that at a certain level, time travel could take place within an individual's body. Archer is in the past, but he's in the past as the Archer who was there. It's in this moment, I felt like there was a little bit of a tip of a hat to quantum leap. There was a moment where 
Archer says to largely the audience, turning aside from anybody else in the room and kind of to the camera says, I'm traveling through time. And it's mm -hmm. this kind of quantum leap-like experience that Archer is going through of time travel within his own body. Yep. And he now, in his own regular time, is sharing information about how to prepare for the next step, which is a device is built, Reed is given information to, as to how to set up this thing onto the, the grappler arms and they are go to a location where there's an asteroid and they're, they're circling this area of space. They use these devices and they reveal a cloaked ship and they reveal the cloaked ship in such a way as to not reveal to the ship that they've been spotted. I thought this mm -hmm. was a nice device, not, not technically the device in the episode, but plot device. Although all of this opens up the idea of like, how does this anti-cloaking just kind of like disappear into the ether? What, yeah, like, how does the Federation not figure out how to use this in other cases with other cloaked ships? But mm -hmm. we'll forget all of that. They spot the cloaked ship. They're able to target it in such a way as to be able to disable it quickly. And this was one of my favorite moments of the episode as well when Reed's targeting because of a device that they find in Daniels's Raiders of the Lost Ark locked up, you know, cabin. They mm -hmm. find a device that as Reed is looking at it, he says they've got information about dozens of different types of Klingon vessels. And Archer's like, yeah. I promised him we'd only look at this one ship. We're only going to look at the Sulaban vessel. Because of the schematics, Reed is able to target very quickly. It seems like five particular spots on the Sulaban ship get hit by phaser blasts in quick order. So the Sulaban ship is disabled quickly and a shuttlecraft attaches itself underneath and to Paul and Archer board the vessel and go in and steal data disks. They're basically stealing the evidence of the Sulaban involvement from the Sulaban. Can I just say about this entire sequence where they're running through the ship, the whole in invasion, the knocking them out, going in there, tactical strike. It was like watching a Navy SEAL team kind of go in there. Like everything was going like clockwork. It was working perfectly. Yeah. My one disappointment about this entire sequence was why the hell is the captain there? Why the hell is uh, the first in command, I mean, the second in command there? Why was it not Reed? and two security officers. It, it would have been, have been so much better to have a highly trained security crew doing this infiltration. And it would have given Reed a chance to look like this badass commando running through the ship. Sure. Where every time in every episode we've ever seen Reed be down there, he always gets knocked out immediately. He's the first guy that gets shot and is like on the ground, almost unconscious. Or somebody jumps out from a side room and like punches him in the face and knocks him down. He's mm -hmm. always the person that gets like, he's a punching bag and never gets to kind of show why he's the head of security. Right. This would have been an opportunity to show him as a as a, a badass security guy. Yeah. And to show his team kind of operating of like, oh no, he's got a, a nice little trained team here going. Why? Why? It was not only was it the first and second <laughs> command, but Trip was there as well. 
Yeah, it was. So bizarre. you effectively have the top three command positions on the Enterprise doing an extremely dangerous, doing extremely maneuver. dangerous commando work. Whereas Reed is, yeah. meanwhile, uh, firing the phasers, which is now done. So he doesn't have anything to do during this period. It's, it's stupid. <laughs> the I do think that the sequence of the attack on the on the ship is well rendered and it's exciting yes. and they're yes. being chased through the ship and there's a couple of moments where they're pinned they're using like stun grenades in an interesting fashion you see cloaked Sulaban falling from the ceiling I thought there were some mm-hmm. neat touches like that they managed to get these data disks the other element that I neglected to mention earlier was that one of the things that has convinced Archer that his experience of going to the past was true was that he went to the shuttlecraft that went to the planet and found a cloaked device which was meant to mimic uh, phase. It was supposed to mimic the phase exhaust. So it mm-hmm. was it was the device that was used to ignite the planet. He knows now, like, I didn't make this up and not only did I not make this up, we are innocent of causing the accident. So they go, they get these data disks. These eventually are given to Hoshi. She is given, along with T'Pol, the task of figuring out, we need to figure out how to even interface with the data that's on these, let alone decrypt it and figure out what it is. But as they have that information and they're able to decrypt it, they're able to see the sequence of the Enterprise being tracked by the Sulaban and a Sulaban shuttle attaching itself to their shuttle, which would have been the point that the the device would have been attached to the shuttle. So it looks like they've got their evidence that they need. This is all the proof they need to say the Enterprise was not responsible for this and this should get them out of the field of blame for mm-hmm. the, the accident that took place. But now they've got to get that evidence back into Starfleet's hands and as they are headed back to do so, the ship is experiencing warp field problems. And in another bit of effective, I thought, and jarring CGI, they begin to use the device that they have that revealed the cloaked ships and they're able to spot behind them, it seems like a couple of dozen Sulaban vessels behind them. And in a very eerie moment of the captain saying, pan the camera down. Yeah. And you see the camera go down and there's even more beneath them this outside shots outside shots reveal that the enterprise is completely surrounded in a swarm there's also a nice reference to a previous episode where it was that episode where there was that little ship that was just tailing their you know siphoning off whatever the off gassing was because they were having engine trouble and then that group did the same thing to a klingon ship it struck me as this was a callback to that because mm-hmm. when the captain was like, well, what's, there's something weird going on. It was almost like there was a light bulb in the captain's head of like, oh yeah, last time something like this happened, there was somebody tailing us that we didn't know where that was there. So it, it felt like it was a callback to that. So when they receive a hail and it's from the Sulaban commander and he makes the request that Archer needs to board a vessel that is going to dock with the Enterprise. And if they don't do so, the Enterprise will be destroyed. And the Suleban is doing this under the orders of his Cold War, temporal Cold War counterpart, the shadowy figure that appears in the communication device that he, he visits and gets orders from. And this is the shadowy being that has, in a previous episode, punished Selleck by removing his 
his enhancements in one episode and clearly the person calling the shots and mm -hmm. right up to the point where in this he's commanded you will not destroy the enterprise but you have to get archer archer has to be be held you need to get a hold of him so archer very quickly just accepts this demand and leaves to paul in command and is effectively saying goodbye to his crew and saying like you do what you have to to get this information back safely i'm going to go get on this shuttle but when he gets on the turbo lift when the door is open he's not on the enterprise anymore he steps out and he is somewhere else and the enterprise crew doesn't realize that he's disappeared but the Sulaban do and the Sulaban begin to say where is he we demand that he join us and to Paul and the rest of the crew are very confused as to what's going on because as far as they're concerned he was on his way to the shuttle yep but where is Archer well it turns out that he is in a derelict 31st century building in San Francisco and with him is Daniels and Daniels is effectively having a panic attack because yes. Daniels is looking around saying 10 minutes ago I had breakfast right over here and the city did not look like this and things have changed because I brought you here and it turns out by bringing Archer in an attempt to save him from the Suliban by bringing him to the future that very act has now changed the past in a way that has destroyed the ability for that future to even exist. And that's where we'll end our summary of part one. And Matt, are you ready to time travel back to 2002 again? No, let's go back. Because, well, as Eddie Money once said, you can't go back, but... Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Episode two aired on September 18th, 2002. And what did the world look like then? Well, Matt, I know you'll be heartbroken to know that Pink's Don't Let Me Get Me was no longer at the top of the charts. I'm sure you're wondering, what were you dancing to, though? Uh, yeah, I would love to know, Sean. Well, it was Dilemma. That's right. It was the second single by Nelly. And this one featured Kelly Rowland of Destiny's Child. And this was the follow-up to his big hit, Hot in Here, which had already charted during the summer. At the movies... Barbershop was the number one film, which is a way to prove that the September box office is very different from the May box office. The May box office mm -hmm. is pulling in $80 million with Star Wars, and in September, you're getting $20 million with Barbershop. And Barbershop is the 2002 American comedy drama, which stars Ice Cube, Anthony Anderson, Keith David, and Cedric the Entertainer. And on television, well... Surprisingly, this episode of Enterprise would have been probably considered an early entry into the new fall season because mm -hmm. most of the new episodes for the fall season didn't start until a week later. So what were people watching? Well, people were watching Survivor, which at one point was largely a summer filler program. And it pulled in 23 million people. So... Whereas this episode, part two, didn't break 5 million viewers as a new episode, as part two of Cliffhanger. 
Survivor was getting 23 million people without even trying. Mm-hmm. And what was in the news? Well, the Dashiell-headed attempt to get a investigation into the September 11th attacks, that was now in the past. That investigation would, in fact, take place and the 9-11 commission would be formed. But what was in the news at the time of the airing of this episode? Well, we were beginning to hear the first calls to invade Iraq. The end of 2002, we would be looking shortly a year later into the beginning of the second Iraq war. At this point, the New York Times headline reads, rift seen at the UN over next steps to deal with Iraq. The United States insisted here today on keeping up the pressure on Iraq with a tough new Security Council resolution, while Russia, France, China, and the Arab nations said Iraq's decision to allow the return of international weapons inspectors was enough to hold off stronger action for the time being. The very visible rift here exposed core differences between the United States and other major countries at the United Nations, which contended that the weapons inspectors should be given time to determine whether Iraq is producing prohibited weapons. So aboard the Enterprise, Archer is gone, T'Pol is in charge, and she's got a swarm of very, very angry hornets, I mean Sullivan, surrounding the ship. And she does what, under most other circumstances, would seem unthinkable. She basically just gives up and invites the Sullivan aboard. She has effectively nothing to hide. There is no plot. There is no secret to keep Archer away from the Sullivan. And she does, I think, in an audacious way, it's the best course of action yes. because yep. otherwise the Enterprise will be destroyed. And it leads to some very interesting moments where the rest of the crew, I thought in a very telling way, this episode and the previous one have a number of moments with T'Pol, T'Pol and Archer in particular, where she goes at one point in part one and argues, like, you're feeling sorry for yourself. There's action yeah. that needs to be taken. And in this episode, she's now fully in charge. And the response from the crew when she invites the Suleban to come aboard and look, nobody really calls her out on it. She well, has they, they do resist. They it's do like resist. Trip go, come on. And she says, Well, do you have better options? I'm 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 listening. Right. And they're all like, No, you're right. This is the best right. course. They back her call when she explains herself, but it's yeah. it's it's an effective transition of power to a person at the very beginning of the series that would have been, the crew would have figured out how to just completely ignore her in the earlier part of season one. But at yep. this point, she they has their her. trust. And so yep. when she says, this is what we need to do in this case, and then figure out what's happening before we make any actions, and the crew follows her. So you end up with the Suleban suddenly swarming the vessel. They're getting the data disks that were stolen. They're getting that information back. They're, the Enterprise has effectively lost all of it, the evidence it needed in order to prove its innocence in the accident. But meanwhile, in the 31st century, Archer and Daniels are effectively walking around a ruined San Francisco. And here for me is one of the bigger issues with the time travel as they've set it up in this episode. Mm -hmm. At this point, it feels like they don't know what the rules of their own time travel are. No, they don't. 
And it's, it feels like a weakness to say, if somebody moves forward in time, that history then reflects all of that as if that person was removed from it permanently. That would be a tremendous blow to a lot of Star Trek and a lot of science fiction in general that plays with the idea of people moving forward in time. Yeah, no, they don't, they don't obey their own rules that they set up from yeah. the very first episode of this two-parter. So it's like, it's different rules. It's like, oh, he's traveling back in time in his own body, but then he goes forward in time actually physically. Right. So it's like, it's what, what's going on here? It's like, it's not clear rules that they're setting up. And they also set up in his discussions with Daniels. Daniels seems largely pessimistic. He's, he's, he's quickly given up because none of the technology he thinks he needs in order to make anything work exists and it seems like at this point archer is largely the one to say like well let's start figuring out what we're going to do well let me also raise a question of so you took archer out of time which altered the future which now we're in this like desolate landscape of an alternate universe without archer instigating things how is daniel still there yes it's like the technology is gone the rooms are gone Everything every, else is gone. Every other person yet, is gone. Every other person is gone. But yet Daniels, the guy who probably pushed the button, he's still here. That right. makes that makes no sense. There's a there's a break there. And once again, this is where the hand waving got super hand wavy of like, yeah. don't think about this. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes evident that what they're looking for are opportunities to do things as yes. opposed to doing things that make sense within the rules that they claim to have set up previously. Yes. But Daniels and Archer, the entire scene seems to be built around one conceit, which is Daniels needs to let r reveal a drip, drip, drip of information that for us, the viewer, is going to be, oh, I know what he's talking about. And for Archer, mm -hmm. it's going to be gobbledygook. It is, oh, the statue isn't here. The buildings that should be here aren't here. There's a thing called the Federation that should be revealed here. And Archer doesn't know what these things mean. And we, of course, the viewers do. So it's supposed to be a bit of fan service at this moment of us feeling like, oh, it's about saving the, all of what we know. And it's a little awkward because of... Daniels up to this point has played a game of like, I shouldn't reveal things to you that you shouldn't know. But now he feels completely emboldened to like literally name the Federation, but yeah. then also say, but I shouldn't tell you more. Yeah. It's a bit of like silly writing that doesn't really work super, super well, but they end up heading toward a, a library where, it's like, okay, let's go in here and let's figure out if we can research what has changed, what, what has happened. And as they're looking through history books, Daniel says everything from the 21st and 22nd century is where it should be, but it's events after your disappearance that have, where things diverge from what they should have been on. To me, this is a bit of research that I... I, f I actually said out loud, so you just researched the conclusion that you literally said at the end of part one, which was Daniel said, by me taking you out of the past, I've changed 
my present. So mm -hmm. they go to the library to research what changed and determined it was that Archer had left the past. I didn't understand the point no. of all of that research. It's at this moment that it's largely around now, Daniel's finally kind of like waking up out of his stun to say, oh, well, let's see if we can't use some of the tech you might have on you to actually figure out a way to reach back and communicate into the past. Mm -hmm. While all of that is happening aboard the Enterprise, and again, it's one of those weird things, a story being told, being told with part of it happening in the future and part of it happening in the past, but it's being interwoven as if those events are taking place at the same time. It becomes a little mm -hmm. weird, a little trippy. But aboard the Enterprise, T'Pol is being tortured in the Suleban attempt to figure out where Archer went because they clearly can't avoid discovering that Archer is not aboard the ship. It's only late in the Suleban investigation that they notice a temporal marker that shouldn't be in the turbo lift. So they do determine, okay, somebody has done something with time in order to get Archer out of here. But the Suleban commander is also scrambling. Uh, Silic is largely panicking. He feels like he's panicked. He's panicked yeah. and he doesn't have the confidence. He doesn't, he up to this point is seemed like he's a commander in charge of the Suleban, but it now becomes evident that he's merely the strong man, that the person who communicates to him through time as part of the temporal cold war is the brains of the operation. And Silic doesn't have the confidence to command in his own right. He won't pull the trigger on destroying the enterprise. He doesn't know what else to do. And he keeps begging effectively for the technology to work where he's trying to get the communications from whoever has been giving him the commands and nobody's responding. So whatever has happened as a result of Archer being removed from the timeline has affected not only Daniels and his future, but also the future that that communication was coming from. The crew is being locked down. They are put in their respective cabins. And then this becomes... The part of the the part of the episode that I think is the strongest, which is yes. the crew is largely able to come up with a plan on its own in a kind of hive mind way of them all knowing they all know they all need each other, and it's about that creating that circle amongst all the members of the crew, and it all starts with. Trip being able to use the doorbell to I, communicate through the doorbell with Reed. Yeah. It's it's very clever here because you brought up how the scene with T'Pol on the bridge showed how the characters have evolved over the course of the season where they now trust her as a commander. And this sequence, I love this whole sequence with how they plan, plan what they're planning and how they pull it off because every character is playing to their strengths and they're showing how well of a unified team they have become. Yeah and how they rely on each other. So it's Trip being that classic Starfleet engineer who can make anything out of duct tape and a Band-Aid. Right. And then you've got uh, Reed willing to, we'll talk about it in a minute, put his physical being at risk for the nature of of, for, of helping the crew. You've got Hoshi, which we'll be talking in a minute, putting herself in a very claustrophobic situation, which was established in the very beginning of the show of how she's 
scared to be in space. She's claustrophobic. And she has kind of overcome her, you know, fears to do what she's about to do. So it's like, it was really interesting to show how each character has evolved over the course of the show and how they've all kind of bonded as a, as a well-oiled machine. Right. I thought that was a really nice set of writing and it's very exciting what they pull off. Yeah. It's set up very organically. It feels like yeah. it comes right out of the characters as opposed to some of the other elements in this episode in particular. Um, part one had it, had, you know, the, the deus ex machina in the form of when Archer shows up in the morning and says, I time traveled last night and here's a bunch of stuff we need to build. Like that's, it's like, okay, you're just getting the plot moving through this hand coming out of nowhere and pushing it forward. This feels the exact opposite. This is, as Matt said, these characters, they've shown this development of this web of trust between all these different members, even to the point where Hoshi argues, I don't want to do it. Is there anybody else, any other way to do this? And everybody has to lovingly force her hand. They lovingly say, like, we know how hard this is going to be for you, but you really are the only one who can do this. I thought that was a very nice bit of, mm -hmm. of uh, scenery be between all of those characters. And as you said, Tripp's genius at being able to, he's got some sort of tool that he's using <laughs> on a doorbell. And he's like, I can talk to anybody on, on C-Deck. Yeah. He says, we can B talk deck. to anybody on B-Deck, but we need to get to C-Deck because that's where T'Pol and Hoshi and, and everybody else are. So he's, he's like, give me some time. I'll be back in touch. And he disconnects from, from Reed and he begins working again. T'Pol's recovery from her torture it and it's never really revealed like they're they don't seem to be doing things physically to her but something is done and she yeah. is she's like a bowl of jello when she's dumped back into her quarters and in a very nice piece of acting from her she's so out of it that she that on some level she can't even respond when magically a floating head of her captain appears <laughs> in her quarter where did it's this a very funny sequence yeah very funny sequence <laughs> where did this floating head come from well it came from daniels and archer who had been working in the future using daniels knowledge he says we built things like this in high school taking apart the communicator that archer has and literally cobbling together something using found copper that was on an artifact in a, in the library and making strips of copper that they can use to create some sort of linkages to create this device. And, and Daniels describes it as there was the ability of some people in time to be able to communicate through time without being able to actually move through time. Yep. And that's what they're tapping into. This is effectively tapping into the same type of device that Silic is getting his commands through. We've seen this kind of technology at work. But the way it manifests is very Wizard of Oz into yes. Paul's cabin. And it's and it's an effect that I thought was so effective. Part of me was like, I wish that we saw more communication that looked like this in the show. Because I thought it looked really cool. It's kind of yeah. a sepia-toned, bronzified archer face floating in the middle of Paul's room. And him communicating with her initially very bluntly. And then as he realized that she's struggling in some way, he becomes more tender toward her mm -hmm. and invites her to remember. Remember when I said to you to keep an open mind. Up to this point, she has been dismissive of the idea of time travel. 
repeating over and over again the phrase, the Vulcan Science Academy has determined that time travel is not possible. That is the end of her entire argument. This is just yep. something that is impossible. And that is the only thing that she's revealing to the Sulban, which is why they're so upset with her. She just keeps repeating over and over again, time travel is not possible. So Archer has now been in communication with T'Pol. Trip is using the doorbells to try and link everybody to be able to communicate, including T'Pol, and puts into motion their attempt to break out of their confinement, which includes Hoshi, as Matt brought up, climbing through the ductwork. And it's described as being an area of the ship that upon the ship's construction was sealed off. It was never intended for anybody to go into it. But she has to climb through multiple decks to be able to get to Dr. Phlox, who then gives her some hyposprays, which she then returns to read and they then begin their plot of effectively disarming enough of the Suliban to get to where they need to in the engine room. They knock a couple of the Suliban out. Hoshi is then given the task of like, you just stay in this room. I didn't really like the fact that she's just basically put in a room with the hyposprays and like knock them back out if they wake up. Like, oh, come on. There's other stuff she can do. But Trip goes into the engine, into the uh, engineering section, they knock out a couple of more Suliban and Trip starts doing something to the engine. And we see as the Suliban are continuing to reconnect, uh, Silic is still trying to reach out to the, the person who he's waiting for orders from. And when he finally starts to seem like he's getting some signal, it's the result of, as Matt brought up before, Reed goes into Daniels's quarters, pulls something out of a cabinet, and is immediately captured, and then is beaten three days to Tuesday. Well, it's right before he does that whole maneuver, they all look at Reed and say, Are you really ready Are you for sure this? about this? Yeah. And he just looks at them and goes, Yeah. And it's like, and you're like, What's that about? Yeah. Well, you find out. Trip he's in particular says, it's, it could get bad. He says it yeah. could get rough. And he's just like, I'm ready. And it yeah. turns out that what he's ready for is to get the snot knocked out of him. Which he does. Yes. And <laughs> and the makeup in particular makes it look like his wounds, he looks like he would probably have like a fractured eye socket, his yeah. broken nose. Like it looks like teeth might be knocked out. Like he's being beaten in a way. The makeup makes it look like he's been beaten senseless for 20 minutes or more. Yeah. And which made it disturbing for me when later on to Paul reveal refers to minor. some minor injuries. <laughs> and I was, I was like, this is a moment where they really could have highlighted Reed's heroism in this moment where yes. when it's like, is the crew okay? Her response could have been Reed requires medical attention because of extensive injuries, but he should recover. It, <laughs> the minor yes. injuries really stood out to me as like minor like, yeah, it was a record scratch for me when she's the called man it looks minor. Like, I was like, that did not look yeah. minor at all. Even the man with the looks like his futuristic, jaw be broken. Yeah, even with futuristic medical stuff that they can do, it's like, come on, that's not minor. Yeah, there's no minor here. <laughs> no. But Reed has taken this device and claims that Archer told him to destroy it, to not let it fall into the Suliban hands. He doesn't know what it does, but the Silic immediately takes this to his room and begins to use this in an attempt to 
use it with his communication device to make the device work. And cut to the chase, this device, whatever Daniels's device is about, is likely in some way the tech of actual physical time travel. Because once it is activated and it's linked through the communications device, the figure that appears is not the figure that Silic was expecting, even though Silic begins immediately to refer to it as like, I'm glad I finally reached you. And the figure says something that Silic doesn't understand when suddenly leaping out of the communications array comes mm -hmm. Archer. This is another moment of hand-waving, like, yep. how is this able to work like this when it was said that tech like this... Just go with it. Just go with just it. Just go with it. Archer jumps out, knocks Silic out, and then steals a vessel and effectively takes a hostage. He even admits to it, saying, I know we don't normally do this, but I felt it was appropriate in the circumstances. And the Enterprise has been, at this point escapes from the Sulaban helix in space, their space station, because what Trip had been doing in the engine room was effectively setting up a fake engine overload so that the Sulaban are towing the ship away from their station. And once it's far enough away and disconnected from the shuttles, they kick the Enterprise into high gear and take off at warp, but now they're being chased through space and being hammered by all these Sulaban ships when suddenly the attack stops and in a very effective moment, I think, of the directing where the attack is taking place and you're getting the classic camera shaking to show the mm -hmm. effect of the impacts when suddenly all of that stops and the sound effects stop and the crew just sits there and looks at each other thinking, what happened? Why, mm -hmm. why aren't they blowing us up? All the Suliban ships peel away and one shuttle approaches and when they hail it, it's Commander Archer. Captain Archer, excuse me, I just demoted him accidentally. <laughs> he arrives and is like, it's me, I took a hostage, it's fantastic, we're all back together again, is everybody okay? Yay. Reed cut himself shaving, no problem, he's going to be <laughs> fine. After... All of that, and it's clear that they would have, Archer would have gotten aboard the Enterprise and then set the shuttle to drift and Silic just wakes up and is by himself in the shuttlecraft probably because they make no reference to him being arrested. They don't... Well, no, he said, he made, no, he said that um, I'm just going to let, let him adrift when I right, get aboard. Right, But why you would do that with Silic makes no sense. Right. But... The conclusion to the episode is now effectively an, a very informal hearing. This is not in any way a formalized process, but it is the Vulcans making their argument, like, despite the evidence that you have, despite the evidence that you have proving that the Enterprise wasn't involved in the accident itself, just by proximity to it and what you've done in all these other cases, you should be called back. This, this mission should be canceled and humanity should wait for probably another couple of decades before it heads off into space in this way. And Archer is making his arguments largely, not necessarily to the Vulcans, but to the other 
members of Starfleet to say, yep. look, we're we're like that baby gazelle that gets born and within a few hours it's running alongside its mother and it's different for humans. It's a slower process for us, but where we are right now is we're in those first baby steps into space and we can't let this single event or the the way that things have happened, the mistakes we've made, keep us from continuing to move forward and learn how to stand on our own, learn how to walk on our own and how to go on with this mission. And when even that seems to be missing the mark, that's when T'Pol steps forward. And this is from the producers when they made this episode. And I found it interesting that this episode was not written this is something I think Matt and I will want to talk about a little bit briefly after finishing the synopsis of the episode. Episode two was not written when episode one was filmed. And normally they would have taken their hiatus and then written the episode. But what they ended up doing is Brennan and Braga, Berman and Braga ended up writing this episode. They took three weeks after the shooting of episode one to write episode two. So they tried to write this immediately after filming the first part. And what they felt worked very well in this episode was that this is the first moment where T'Pol stands by unequivocally by the Starfleet mission and Archer. Mm -hmm. There's no hemming or hawing. There's no seeing the Vulcan side. She simply steps forward and in a very, what I think is a very well done scene for her, makes the argument that the Vulcans are effectively cherry picking information and using the bits that they like is a cudgel to knock down humanity instead of recognizing that there's something happening here which is analogous to something that happened to the Vulcans centuries earlier, which is humanity is emerging from a period of internal chaos and forming a worldview, forming a, a, a philosophy around what they're trying to do. On top of which, ignoring their own actions that created the situations that they're complaining about. Yes. Which I thought Particularly was a nice touch too. calling out the fact that the Vulcans had a listening post that any kind of questionable peace with the Andorians being thrown asunder, throwing that at the feet of the humans was a mistake because it was the Vulcans who broke the treaty in the first place with their listening post under yep. a ancient Vulcan monastery. So the destruction of that monastery came about not as the result of the humans, but as a result of the Vulcan action itself. The episode ends, I think, with one of the nicest scenes up to this point in the series. Mm -hmm. T'Pol is getting ready for bed and she is disturbed from her slumber by Archer who is at the door. He comes in in pajamas. A very nice moment where he says, I think Crewman Cutler saw me come in here. And <laughs> T'Pol's response of, she's been known to be discreet. <laughs> So the entire implication being like, if people think we're doing something. No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> Better that we have this talk. And Archer simply says, I think you put it over the top. Which I thought was a really great framing for the, the argument that T'Pol makes. 
archer mm-hmm. saying like i i filled i filled the glass this full but you're the one who got it the rest of the way yeah really just putting it in her hands of you've saved the mission and showing in that moment that there is a bond now between archer and to paul that goes both directions it is about trust running in both directions not just from a captain to a subordinate but as partners in making this mission happen so i think part two for me uh certain elements of it are like hitting really high marks certain elements slightly missing the mark makes it kind of a mixed bag but overall I felt like this two-parter was effectively a better pilot than the first two-parter that we talked about, which was the actual pilot. I felt like this is where the show steps into being this show. Yeah, I, I that closing scene, I just want to talk about that for a second, was very, I don't know, it was emotionally true. It felt really good to me the way they ended it. And there's something that they said right at the end before it cut to credits I loved was her saying to him as he's walking out, I still don't believe in time travel. Yeah. And him just going, the hell you don't. And then he just walks out and cuts to black. And I was like, that is the best wit in that that scene. For me, the these two episodes, I thought the first one was stronger than the second one. The second one had more of those writer shortcuts of like, don't look behind the curtain moments than the first one did. Yeah. But I forgive those issues because the the emotional truth of these characters and the character bonds and the action sequences, all the other stuff that's good mm-hmm. is so good. It makes up for those deficiencies of the time travel fiasco that they created for themselves. Yeah. Um, so I think this, this was a very strong two-parter. And one of the things I wanted to bring up, how you talked about how they wrote this episode immediately after filming the finale was how disappointed I am in season one because they set up this plot line in the pilot, basically didn't touch it for 15 episodes. Yeah, They had that Suleban prison camp episode, and then they had a couple of minor like mentions, or references back to that episode, and then there's this. So there was basically zero to do. Well, there was also the Daniels episode where they sealed his cabin. But there's basically nothing with this main plot line for the entire show. And yet they were setting this up as the big thing for the show. Yeah, It came across to me as like, I guess I'm looking at this from 2021 mindset. Yeah. We've all gotten spoiled by Netflix and Hulu and these shows that are dumped on us in one go. They're high written concept, and directed. Yeah, high concept television has changed the game. And But they're yeah. also, a lot of these shows are written completely by the creator and yeah. they wrote every episode all at once and then they film it all at once. Yeah. So it is cohesive to the yeah. entire thing. And this one just felt, rewatching again just drove home how slapdash it felt. It yeah. was just like week to week, no consistency. Whatever style guide or brand Bible they came up with for the show and the characters felt like they would let that brand Bible go away if it didn't fit what they wanted to do for that specific week. And it ended up creating this whole kind of chaotic disjointed thing and so looking at at the season you can see why the ratings kept going down and down and down i don't think it was just star trek fatigue i think it was because rick berman and braga they did a horrible job managing the season vision 
I don't think they did a good job with that. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think it's, for me, it's a combination of in 2021, you know, like, like you said, premier television has changed the name of the game and you see something that comes out on television now, like, like, uh, foundation, which it's a movie. Like it's, <laughs> and it jumps forward in time a couple of times before it starts to hit the, the more regular plot. Mm-hmm. But you never feel like you're seeing something that isn't leading to the next thing. And you see something like Breaking Bad, a five-year series that was written by one person who wrote it the way you would write a novel and saying like, okay, I'm starting at point A, I'm working to point Z. I'm hitting every single letter in between and I'm building each episode is going to line up with the episode before it and the episode after it. That, of course, taints all of this. But it's also tainted by Star Trek itself in the ability for longer story arcs to be sprinkled through a season. Started with Next Generation, Mm -hmm. who did it masterfully with, Mm -hmm. with... longer story arcs around the Klingon empire and things that were going on with the, the backstory of Worf and his family and data and his lineage and what it meant when you would have soon show up as a character or if the Borg returned and then deep space nine took that and turned it up several notches and had continuity in seasons where there would be an ongoing war for most of the season. Mm-hmm. And it was about where are we in the war? Are we winning or are we losing? And everything built. And you don't necessarily need to watch them in order to, you know, you don't have to be locked in order for those. But it helps. And you can see, okay, there were they had a bigger vision here. And Voyager, of course, did it hit or miss, but overall it's a seven-year-long series where they have one big mission. We want to get home. Mm-hmm. And things are hung on that arc, almost like Christmas lights. So it's going off into the distance, always on that line in some way. Everything mm-hmm. is tainted. Every experience they have is tainted by, but we want to get home. Enterprise didn't manage that in quite the same way. It's not enough to say, oh, we want to go see things. Like that's not enough of a direction and it doesn't hold on to that enough. And like you said, the Suleban plot line being sprinkled in the way it was felt like missed opportunities more than taking advantage of a story. Because at the end of it, it doesn't feel like they have enough of an understanding of what their story, what they're trying to get to. And it feels at times like what they're trying to get to is perhaps that Archer is critical Mm -hmm. to the future, that he is a key player in something, but there's not enough made of that to really... And when you start to see, like in the discussions that we've been having, it takes for me some of this back and forth with you on a weekly basis to start to see some of these connections. And if that's what it takes, then maybe that's not effective storytelling like oh there was the episode where archer helped release the suliban from the internment camp and then a following episode somebody who knew about that event had turned it into a folklore type of thing and made him this larger than life hero 
Right. Okay, so are you seeing now a little bit of a plot point there of the reputation of Archer is growing beyond the man. He's becoming a super historical figure, even in his own era. And like, oh, okay, now I can see that. But that's not evident on the week-to-week watching. Yes. And it's only evident to me now as I'm saying this to you, like, oh, if this kind of discussion is necessary to start putting those pieces together, then you're missing, you're missing your opportunities. Yeah, it's, it's not like they had to do something in every single episode no. with the time travel stuff, but they could have linked far more episodes in, into that in a very subtle way with like the Enterprise ending up in this horrible situation and it looks like they're going to just totally sour the relationship with the Vulcans or something else. And then in, and there's maybe some kind of a little bit of a conspiracy theory in the background of like, they they discover something where it was like, oh no, this was contrived. Like right. there's something about this that that shouldn't have happened, but this, this, this event that caused all this to happen shouldn't have actually happened the way it did. We don't know why. Right. They could have dropped all these little hints through the entire show so that when the Daniels episode sprang up, it's like, oh, these are all linked. Like yeah. the Enterprise has been being put in these bad situations deliberately. Somebody is trying to trip them up left and right. right. And it's like that could have been a thread the entire season so that when this stuff happened in the finale... Yeah. It would have had even more weight and and meaning to what was going on. It would they have didn't been, do that. Yeah, it would have been, it, to go in the vein of what you're talking about, it would have been interesting if there had been, as they're moving forward and meeting people for the first time, word of them was getting around in the quadrant, but a lot of it was misinformation. Yes. And if they were coming across like, where is this information coming from that is telling people we're dangerous? Yeah. That were, that we, like, who is telling these myths? And on the it's, other side of it, if there was something that was going on in, in a couple of the episodes that laid the idea that Archer and T'Pol perhaps begin to suspect is somebody aboard the Enterprise leaking information. There could have been an episode where something like intensely secret aboard the ship is known by a third party. And it becomes a question of, is there somebody doing something behind the scenes that well, we're not aware of yet? It's, All of that would that, have added to the intrigue. They set it up as a temporal cold war. Which means spies. All you, yeah. all you have to do is look at the cold war that happened in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s and say, okay, let's take some lessons from that. It's all about spies and misinformation mm-hmm. and let's sprinkle that out through the entire season. That would have been really cool. Yeah. And yet, even though they set it up as a cold war, we don't see any of the cold war except for like two or three episodes. Yeah. And it was, it's... They could have taken, you know, like like a history book, like some of the CIA operations that were done against Cuba. Like exactly, like if there had been, like you could have made a masterful episode out of if people aboard the Enterprise started to mysteriously become ill, and it turned out there was a device planted somewhere that was using sound waves that was creating some sort of mental block, and it was making Mm -hmm. people act progressively sloppier and sloppier with the hope that eventually they would something some mistake would be made that would cripple the ship like yep things like that you could have played with that as an element and a, and a show in trek built around cold war mentality would have fit with what they're talking about the mm-hmm. the the kind of wild west of the vulcans don't really like them they really don't have many allies out here like it would have been an interesting it would have been an interesting perspective because the Cold War was two superpowers warring through Proxies. other countries right. being manipulated. Right. And so it's like this would have put this Earth and the Vulcans 
as the people who are being manipulated and these are the races being manipulated by these two superpowers that nobody really quite knows and they're right. off there in the distance manipulating everything. It would have been really interesting to explore that. Right. It's a shame. It would have been very interesting to explore it and it would have, I think, if that had been what the first season was, yeah, I think it would have left the future of the show in a better place post 9-11. But as we mm -hmm. will discover as we move forward from this point, Enterprise diverges from this larger plot line yep. and never really revisits it. So, but as we move forward in time, as we can't avoid it, we'll end this episode and I'll remind people of my invitation to give us a better episode synopsis than Wikipedia had, but make sure it's wrong answers only. Next time we're going to be talking about the episode Carbon Creek. Matt, do you have any predictions? What will we be talking about in Carbon Creek? I wonder if it's going to be a creek that's made of carbon. Mm, interesting. Hmm. So, is there anything you want to remind our listeners about? What do you have going on? What's going on with your main channel? Just uh, usual stuff. I'm doing a lot of exploration into new battery technologies and energy storage technologies, sustainable tech. Just be sure to check out Undecided with Matt Farrell. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And as for me, as usual, you can check out my website, seanfarrell.com. There's information about my books there, both the books for adults, a couple of novels, books for kids, a couple of picture books. Check them out and you can look for them at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any bookstore. Shop local. Remember to visit trekintime.show and through there you will find a link that will allow you to throw coins at our faces and we appreciate having coins thrown at our faces. As usual, if there are any comments or corrections, please do reach out. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes. Or on YouTube, you can just scroll directly below this video. You'll miss our smiling faces, but you'll find a comment section that will allow you to leave a correction such as, that's not a Suluban, you idiot, that's Sulu. Please remember to subscribe, to like the episode, and share it widely with friends and strangers. And come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody.